Good morning. Please turn with me in your copies of Holy Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. On Sunday nights, we've been making our way slowly through this letter from the Apostle Paul to a little divided church in the ancient Greek city called Corinth. More specifically, we have been lately discussing the spiritual gifts which Paul addresses in chapters 12 to 14, and we've been trying to ask and answer the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does a truly spiritual person look like? That was the question that was dividing the church in Corinth, and it divides churches today. What does true holiness look like? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Does a truly spiritual person mean that you will be out on the street corners preaching the gospel to all the lost in all of your spare time? Does a truly spiritual person mean that you're going to open your home and squeeze in as many orphans as you possibly can? Is that what true spirituality looks like? Does spirituality mean that you ought to be the one preaching and teaching at every opportunity? Or does it mean you need to be the one changing diapers and wiping tables. How you ask and answer the question of what true spirituality looks like tells a lot about what you think about Christianity and about the Bible. And the answers to these questions reveal something significant about our understanding for the church as well. Paul knew that a properly functioning church would not force people into a cookie-cutter mold. Rather, the church is gloriously diverse in its giftings. And that diversity ought to be an opportunity to rejoice. Rejoice in God's design. Rather than lament that people around us are different than us. But before we get into that, let's read our text. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. And I'll read through verse 31. Here's God's word for us this morning. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body... That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And on our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But you earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will still show you a more excellent way. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask his blessing on our time. Our Father in heaven, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, the one who merely spoke and brought all things into existence. You are the one who knits us together in our mother's womb. You know us from before our beginning. Father, help us to see how you not merely knit together our physical bodies, but you knit together, according to your design, the body of Christ. Help us to love Christ's body. Out of love for our head, who saves us, Christ our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at the first two verses and see the illustration introduced. Paul's illustration introduced. He turns to the subject of anatomy to introduce his sermon illustration about the church. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul, ever the master teacher, uses in this section an extended illustration in order to highlight truths that could have otherwise be missed by the Corinthian congregation. And he begins with the wonderful theological truth that the church is the body of Christ. But he also does something unexpected in verse 12. Did you catch it? He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with the church? No, it's not what he said. He said, so it is with Christ. That's an intentional assertion, and it is deeply theological. Paul is teaching us that the body of Christ is so associated with Christ himself that they are spoken of as a single, connected entity. In fact, the language of the body of Christ is used in several places, particularly in Paul's writings, highlighting that Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the body in terms of authority, in terms of rule. He's the boss. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the leader, the chief. But he's also head in terms of origin. Just like the headwaters of a stream is the source of a river, Christ too is the fountain, the source, the origin of our union with the body. To connect it more specifically to this passage, we are united to the body. We are made part of the body of Christ through union with the head. It is by faith in Christ and faith alone that we become part of the organic institution of the body. And by virtue of our union with the head, then we become united with one another. Union with Christ as our head is the ultimate ground of any connection that we have, any fellowship that we have. And the world cannot understand this. The world divides people, divides them in all manner of categories, gender, 
race, how much money we make, what school we went to, what political party we like, what job we have, all of these things are reasons to divide, but not so with the church, not with the body of Christ. The church is glorious in its diversity because what unites us is not something accidental like the color of our skin or the size of our bank accounts. What unites us is a shared bond with our head, Jesus Christ. And because of that bond, we can share fellowship in the body. That's the next verse, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. It is into one Holy Spirit that we were all baptized. We were all plunged. We were washed. The Jews, the Greeks, the slaves, the free, the rich, the poor, the black, the white, all baptized into one body. There's no hierarchy of merit that anyone can claim. There's no preferential treatment. There's no secret handshake that gets us into the door of the church. It's only baptism into the Spirit by faith in Christ. And notice both of the church's sacraments mentioned here. Baptized into the Spirit. Made to drink of one Spirit. That's language pointing back to chapter 10, verse 4, and back to the Lord's Supper discussion in the previous chapter, chapter 11. Our union with Christ produces a theological reality of baptism into the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is then pictured when we undergo water baptism and join a local church. Our union with Christ then permits the ongoing blessing of participation in the Lord's Supper among the body, whereby the Spirit works through a picture of the gospel to preserve us to the end. It's into one Spirit that we're baptized And therefore, it is into one body that we are baptized. In sum, Paul says that our singular head, Jesus Christ, and our sharing in His one Holy Spirit shows us the silliness of division over giftings in the body. But there were divisions in Corinth. Divisions over how to value the various spiritual gifts, as we see in the verses ahead. And so, Paul warns the Corinthians of two different dangers, two different pitfalls. And the first danger is a sense of inferiority. A sense of inferiority that some people feel about their spiritual gifts. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And Paul reminds them of the underlying principle that the body has various parts. That's simple enough. The children down in the nursery know that. We have two eyes, we have two ears, we have two feet, we have one mouth. But then Paul pushes the illustration further, showing the inconsistency of their thinking. The foot cannot say to itself, I don't belong, simply because it's not a hand. But sometimes, we in the church can act that way. The feet can think to themselves, I'm down here at the bottom, down in the dirt, I'm in the dust, I'm the furthest one from heaven, I'm nothing special, I'm good at nothing except stinking and maybe carrying around the big loaf. I'm not as good as the hand. If I were the hand, I could really do something special. I could help communicate. I could grab things and pick them up. But I'm feet. I can't do that. I don't have thumbs. 
I'm not a hand, and so I'm worthless. And so they listen to the lies of Satan and the lies of the world. They tell themselves that they are useless, they are unimportant because they're not gifted like the people that happen to be serving with prominent roles or happen to be serving with exciting gifts. But Paul corrects their thinking. He reminds them of a key principle that diversity of parts is necessary for the body to function properly. If the body is going to function according to its design, it must have different parts. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? This is a silly picture. Children, you can, you can imagine this in your head. If your whole body was just covered in eyes, you had eyeballs everywhere, how would you hear? You'd have great vision, but you couldn't hear. You'd be deaf. Your body wouldn't operate according to its design, according to its maximal function. Conversely, if the whole body was covered in ears, you'd have great hearing, but you couldn't smell. It's a silly mental picture, but the truth is so simple that even the children understand what I'm saying. In fact, we can take it further. Children, when you go home today, after church, I want you to try something. I want you to try and untie your shoes without using your hands. Don't do it now. Some of you, really crafty ones, might be able to figure it out. And if you do, I want you to then put your shoes back on and tie the laces without your hands. If you do that, have your parents send me a picture. I want to, I want to be impressed. I'd be willing to bet that you can't do it. You can't even do something simple like tie your shoes without hands. We need hands. You see very quickly that things get difficult, even impossible, when we operate out of accord for God's design for our body. Indeed, where part of the body is missing, you don't have hands, the whole body is out of sorts. You can't work right. And God knows that. It's not a surprise to him. He invented the idea of the body. And he gifted it the way he wanted it to be gifted. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, each one, as he chose. And so here's another argument for contentment with our gifting, with our station, with our position, with our role. God has gifted each member as he saw fit, and God doesn't make mistakes. You may feel inferior, but that doesn't make it true. You've been given exactly the gifts that you need and that the body needs. And so we don't need to grow envious of the usefulness of our hands among the body or the prominence of the eyes. We don't have to lament the fact that we were born afoot. We can trust that God knows what He's doing. He has knitted you together in your mother's womb according to His infinite wisdom, and He spends no less care knitting together the body of Christ. And to illustrate the point again, he asked the rhetorical question in verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? It means if everybody was a foot, if everybody was a hand, or if everybody was a mouth, what would the body be like? It would be 
deficient. Indeed, it might perish entirely. If the church had all mouths but no stomach, we die. If we have all eyes but no heart, we're done for. So it is with the body of Christ. If everybody were the same, it would not only be unpleasant, it would be deformed, deficient. It would eventually disintegrate. We don't often think like this, do we? We think to ourselves, if everybody would just think the way that I do, if they would just listen to me, if they would spend their time working on the priorities that I have, if they would run thing, run the ministry, run this the way that I think it ought to be run, everything around here would run like clockwork. I have the answers to all the problems. What we're saying in that moment is, I wish everybody were a hand like me. I wish everybody was a foot like me. I want everybody to be just like me, and then life would be sweet and harmonious. You ever felt that way? Why don't people think like that? They would just do what I tell them. But that thinking is the exact opposite of what Paul is arguing in this passage. Indeed, it's not merely ignorant of God's design for the church. Such a disposition is often rooted in pride and impatience. We hands, we can't tolerate the feet. We eyes, we have no patience for the ears. We consider ourselves, our gifts, our preferences much more important and mature than everybody else's. And we have to remember that there is divine intentionality in the diversity, in the diversity of gifts, in the diversity of roles in the body of Christ, and to wish for anything else is to resist the very will of God. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Many parts, one body. Many members, one form. Many roles, one mission. Is any of this sounding familiar? You ever been envious of the gifts that other people have or feel inferior, not quite as good because their gifts seem to be so impressive? Have you ever lamented the fact that you feel lesser, you feel compared with, you feel mediocre standing next to some of the super gifted saints all around you? then listen to Paul's words here. Don't stew in envious pride. Repent of the pride that makes you and your giftings the primary concern. The good of the body and the glory of Christ should be our main concerns. But also remember the good news. The good news is that our head, Jesus, has come and died for prideful envious people. He calls us to Himself to remember His humbleness, His humility, His contentedness, the one who never resisted God's design for Him, God's role for Him, but rather said, Father, not my will, but Your wills be done. Even though that will led Him to death. See, the good news is that Jesus came to the nobodies, And he gave them his Holy Spirit. In humility, he came so that the envious might be made content. 
so that the weak might share in his strength. Further, when you're finding yourself feeling like that depressed foot again, who's sad that he's not a hand, remember the honor that God bestows upon the feet. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those that spread the good news. He admires the beauty of the church's feet, and He has provided for their covering. God does not despise the weaker ones. He cherishes them with special love. The lowly are closer to God's own heart. Remember that when you're tempted to be jealous of those with more prominent gifts. Now, we've looked at the danger of inferiority, feeling less than because of our gifts. Now, let's look at the other side of the road. That we might call that one spiritual gift elitism. Maybe spiritual gift snobbery. This is the temptation to think that some gifts, some people are less prominent, less impressive, and therefore less relevant. Less useful, and so dispensable. We can do without them. But as we'll see, Paul would have us to come to the exact opposite conclusion. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again can the head say to the feet, I don't need you. The eyes can't look around and say, I don't need you, hands. The eye has neither the authority to do that, nor could the eye even remain in existence without the hand. It needs the hands for the body to be fed so that the eyes can be nourished. Further, the head, the controlling organ, can't say to the feet, you're useless down there, you stinky things, I don't need you. It would be silly, the body couldn't move, and therefore the head would have no purpose nor means of locomotion. Paul not only makes the point, but he presses it to a surprising conclusion in verse 22. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. It means essential. The weaker parts of the body are vital. They are critical. The parts of the body you think are weak, you actually cannot live without. You know that that person in the body that really grates on your nerves, kind of bugs you? Not really sure what they're doing or why they're here. They're kind of like the appendix of the body. Just know that when they get inflamed, the body feels like it wants to die. That person, that person might actually be indispensable to the life of the body. When I think of our homebound members, those that are physically limited, some of them can't even move out of bed at all. They can do little more than sit in their chairs and pray. People could consider them unnecessary. They're not contributing anything. Maybe even dead weight to the life of the body. That's how the world would think. But in God's calculus, they're actually indispensable. They are critical. The prayer warriors are the ones that keep this body together. They're the ones that keep the body moving. But we don't, we don't tend to think that way. We think the preacher or the teacher or the ministry leader, those are the critical components. Without those gifts, the ship wouldn't, wouldn't hold together. They're really not. 
God can raise up a preacher like that. The most vital roles are the ones that receive the least amount of honor. That shouldn't surprise us. Think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And the weakest among our body can actually be the most necessary. Because they're the ones that are under no illusion of their own self-sufficiency. They know very well that they are weak. And that drives them to their head, to the source of all strength. And when filled with the strength of the Holy Spirit, of Christ's own strength, they become more vital than anybody with impressive giftings or prominent roles. Let's go back to the image of the body. Go back to our main driving illustration. Think about your lungs for a minute. We don't often think about our lungs, do we? They're soft. They're fragile organ. They need protection. They need the rib cage. Lungs are totally dependent on other things. They can't even function right without muscles like the diaphragm opening and closing. They can't even do their jobs without the help of another. They're not as outwardly impressive as the feet, which move a whole body. They can't make a sound like our mouths can. Lungs can't pick up heavy things like hands and arms can do. And yet, lungs, though weak, are absolutely vital. They're breathing away with no recognition, no outwardly visible results. They seem weak and dispensable, but they're actually indispensable. Without our lungs, we die, and we die quickly. So it is within the body of Christ that those that seem dispensable are the crucial ones. Don't let our short-sighted perception lead us to believe that impressive function and outward performance are true markers of importance. Indeed, Paul proves the point by going back to the image of the human body. Verse 23, And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. And so, the less honorable parts of our body we honor, we show honor by covering them up. We use uh, snazzy Stylish shoes to cover up unsightly feet. Some people use makeup to mask blemishes. They use dyes to cover fading. They use various kinds of clothing to make attractive what has perhaps begun to wilt with time. Further, he says the unpresentable parts we treat with greater modesty. I don't need to mention the unmentionable parts here. We all know where Paul's going. Those parts which would cause embarrassment or shame if they were revealed. The parts which we call indecent for public exposure. Those parts we treat with extra care. And that special care that we give to those parts is not needed for the other parts of the body. That's what verse 24 says. He doesn't list what the more presentable parts are. Maybe he's talking about the face or hands neither of which require covering or much care, neither present scandal when seen in public, usually. 
God has designed and ordained that the body treat its various members in such a way that some parts are more seemly than others, some require more care, more protection than others. The same is true in the church. We can't expect every part of the body to act the same way, to function the same way, and to need the same kinds of care. We can switch over to another well-known biblical analogy. Some sheep need more personal care. Other sheep are more self-sufficient. Some sheep need more correction. Others fall right in line. Some need to be told what to eat and what not to eat. Others are self-feeders. Some sheep are sickly. Some are more fit. Some need more regular shearing. Others less so. And so diversity is no reason for elitism or snobbery. The difference is both a fact of and a blessing to the body of Christ. That's what Paul says next. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This diversity, far from being a liability, actually contributes to the unity of a properly functioning body. In God's wonderful design, we have weak and strong together. We have presentable and unpresentable members of the body, blending together in harmony. If everybody was strong... Who would the strong care for? They wouldn't have anything to do. If everybody was weak, who would be there to lift them up? If everybody were a servant, who would be the one to be served? If everybody needed serving, who would be the servant to do it? If everyone were healthy, there'd be no opportunity to show mercy and compassion. If everyone were teachers, there'd be no one to be taught. And if there were no teachers, who'd do the teaching? You get the point. If we are all the same, there could be no harmony. The church would be like an orchestra that could only play one note. Bah, bah, bah. It sound like an alarm clock is what it sound like. It wouldn't be a symphony. One boring staccato note. But within the diversity of the church, with hundreds of different instruments playing hundreds of different notes, all following the master conductor, our head, then the church becomes a symphony. Some providing melody, others filling in the harmonies, all producing sweet music that could never have been produced if there were only one kind of instrument. It would be impossible. And notice, too, that so tight is the conducting, this this unity, so tight is the sharing of the body of Christ, so close is their association, that they rise or fall together. Look at verse 26. If one member suffers, all of them suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So close is their union that if one part of the body is in pain, we all feel it. We've all felt this. If you've ever had a splitting migraine, pain is only located here, but your whole body is affected. If you've ever slept wrong, pinched a nerve, you've only got pain in one spot, but your whole body is affected. Same is true or ought to be true in the church. 
when one instrument is out of tune, the whole symphony feels it. When one person is grieving, we all grieve. When one person's hurt, we all hurt. We're, that's part of sharing one another's burdens in the body of Christ. But it's not only true in pain, it's also true in joy. When one person is honored, we can all rejoice because part of our body was honored. When one person succeeds, we can all share in the joy rather than being jealous that some other part of the body was shown honor. No, we can rejoice. But we don't often do that. We can be tempted to envy when somebody else gets the praise that we thought we deserved. Someone gets the role that we wanted, the opportunity that we were looking for, the job that we've really been seeking. Rather than joining in the joy of another part of the body receiving honor, we jealously suck the joy from ourselves and from others by pouting about what we think is unfair or about what we deserve. We can even grow to despise the other parts of the body that seem to get honor even while we get nothing. So let us not succumb to that temptation. That's the way the world thinks. The world demands that we all get equal airtime, equal opportunity, equal gifting. There's no distinctions. We're all the same. That's just silly. That's not the way God made the world to work. It's not the way the body works. Some were given a higher station, some lower. Some were given more prominent gifts and roles, some less so. Some were given strength and some were given weakness. And we must remember that if you've been given the gift of faith, if you've been united to our head, Jesus Christ, then remember that you have been baptized, fully immersed into the Holy Spirit, into the gifting God of all grace, and He's given you exactly what you need and exactly what this body needs. We need each other, and we need each other's gifts in order to function according to God's design. Don't let the evil one lure you away with envy or with a sense of inferiority. And don't let despair and jealousy divide you from the body. Don't let a spirit of elitism sneak in and tempt you to judge others as dispensable. Remember, that Jesus didn't consider you dispensable. Even though you were weak, you were defiled, you were less honorable in your sin and worthy of everlasting shame, Christ came down to you. He took your shame, He took your dishonor, and He put it on the cross and He left it there. He washed you of your defilement. He replaced your dishonor with honor. He took your weakness and He replaced it with His unfailing strength. He's taken your separation, your your isolation, your estrangement, and He has connected you with a body, His body, the family of God. Don't despise God's design for the body because in His design you were shown immense honor. And if you aren't yet a part of the body of Christ, or if you have no idea what I've been talking about today, then hear again the good news. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world to take away the sins of His people. 
And if you will turn away from sin and trust in the good news of this salvation, you too can be made a part of the body of Christ inwardly through the washing of the Holy Spirit and outwardly through the washing of the body in baptism. This message is for all, regardless of how dirty or defiled by sin you may be. He can make you clean. He can make you a part of the united body, His body, that is the church. And this picture of Christ's united body is demonstrated for us in another way today. When we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Our Lord instituted a meal for ongoing observance within His body, whereby broken bread symbolizes His own body, which was sacrificed in our place. And the cup of blessing symbolized His blood, which was shed, that sinners may be cleansed. If you're like the disciples in Acts 2 who are devoted to God's Word, and to fellowship among the body, and to the prayers of the body, and to the breaking of bread with the body, then we invite you to join us in this meal. But if you're not yet united to Christ who is our head, first, be united to Him by faith. Be washed of your sin by believing in Him, and then come and join us at the table. Let me pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we thank you for this good news that Christ has come to save sinners. And we thank you for this picture whereby Christ shows that his body was broken instead of ours. His blood was shed so that we might be spared. Use this time to build up, to nurture, to nourish the body of Christ here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.